Hey, Dan, uh, put this on. Okay, here we go. Head in first, then our... What, what the heck is this anyways? Y you look fantastic. Uh, I kind of feel stupid. No ways. Okay, now go pack your bags. I'll come get you in just a minute. Uh, okay. Well, uh, and I'm not sure where we're going, but I mean, seriously, I am not wearing an I'm with Nigan t-shirt. I mean, I already feel like my name is erased in the podcast while you get top billing. Where the heck are we going anyways? It's summertime. That means powwow season. Uh, we just passed Manitowabi right here in Winnipeg. And for the next three months, it's dozens of powwows all across the prairies and even into the United States. Uh, when I was a kid, this meant my whole family piled into a van. Uh, we drove from community to community, living in tents eating bannock hot dogs and date squares. It's going to be great. Oh, you know, and I'm actually really intrigued, but I, I'm not exactly sure what this has to do with me. You're coming. I've, I've got a whole marketing and social media plan. Uh, we'll start out in northern Saskatchewan. We'll work our way south. Okay, every stop, here's the plan. We're going to photograph you at a powwow and then post the photos for our listeners to watch your travels. It'll be like, where's Waldo? But I'm calling it, where's the Lone Ranger? Oh, okay. So let me get this straight. Months away on the road with you in a hot, sweaty van eating nothing but hot dogs and date squares. This has got to be one of your worst ideas ever. I mean, what am I going to tell my wife and my kids? Uh, okay, tell you what. I'll let you bring your guitar and you can sing whatever songs you want on the road. I'll even sing harmony. You know, now that you mention it, this t-shirt looks pretty good. Okay, pick me up after work. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome, everybody. Uh... Uh, Bindigin, as they say at Manitowabi, powwow this past weekend, which has really dominated all of the landscape here in Treaty 1 or Winnipeg. Uh, did you get a chance to go out to the powwow, Dan? Uh, nope. Uh, well, I did, I, yeah, I did not. Listen, I, 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 I will say, and we've talked about this before, I'm actually super keen to get a deeper understanding. It's, it is, as you know, it's hard for journalists to admit that they don't know everything. Uh, but, uh, and I, and I do have a, uh, respectful appreciation for ceremony in indigenous culture. However, uh, I am, I don't know if version is the right word. Definitely newbie. Uh, I need to know more. Teach me more. Oh, well, uh, this you know. is why you need a t-shirt just FYI to be on the safe side. But, you know, this past weekend, Manitowabi, one of the biggest powwows in North America, was right here in Winnipeg. Uh, the city was inundated. I had family in. It was seemed like, you know, not only was the powwow down at the Red River Exhibition Grounds, but uh, it was also right here at my house. Uh, there was the big monster bingo with Manitoba and Dutch mm. Indigenous Cultural Education Center. It was just a massive all-weekend extravaganza. It even ended with the uh, horse relays at Assiniboia Downs, uh, which is traditional horse riding. Uh, so, uh, you know, anyone gets a chance to come to Winnipeg, the time to come is really about mid-May mid, mid -May, uh, to see the, one of the greatest uh, powwows around. And we will get you out and okay. we'll be able to go on the powwow trail uh, this summer. 
And, and, you know, like we joke around about it, but I'm okay with wearing the I'm with Nikon t-shirt. Uh, that may get you more in trouble than, yeah. than instance, I'm not sure. But, it, but if I'm going to wear that t-shirt, I need you to wear a t-shirt too. The t-shirt's going to say, the Lone Ranger has not been canceled. <laughs> then with an arrow to you, that would be great. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, as, as we talk about all the time, we continue to fight a somewhat lonely battle to... Uh, prove to people that the Lone Ranger is not inherently racist. Um, I'm not sure we're winning the battle, but. Well, evidence of that is uh, uh, the ongoing cacophony of responses to our name and to the great uh, work that we're doing here at the podcast. And we have so many now allies who have joined with us on this journey. Mm -hmm. Uh, and thanks again to everybody that's uh, come with us for the past few weeks. Um, let's get into what's happening here in Manitoba. There's, you know, so many stories. It's summertime, clearly. Uh, it's not quite, you know, the summer months of July, August. So what you see is a lot of political uh, maneuvering as we head into the fall with the election. You see a lot of, uh, you know, see the by-election announcements uh, here in Winnipeg. But what's really dominated the, the news this week is, in Brandon, Manitoba, you know, our partner city here in the province, just down the road, about two and a half hours from Winnipeg, uh, there was a very, there is a very uh, controversial um, presentation that was made to the Brandon School Board mm -hmm. by a delegation uh, suggesting the banning of LGBTQ two-spirit books, uh, which has gained a lot of traction, international attention. And once again, Manitoba is uh, at the limelight, at the forefront of an issue that you'd think had gone away, but is now talking about banning books, banning what children see in schools. Well, you know, the uh, because, as you well know, I'm uh, uh, deeply associated with the, uh, the community, uh, the sisterhood and brotherhood of librarians. Uh, my my uh, spouse is a librarian, and uh, like to tell you the truth, it's it's never really been a way. Like there have always been people who wanted to raise uh, uh, concerns about content in public and school libraries, um, but like so many other people, uh, types of extreme views, you know, th these people were not particularly high profile. And but, you know, I mean, it's it's not unusual uh, for anybody who's a public librarian to have somebody walk into the library and point at a and I'm, I'm you know, not kidding you with this, but point at a co-ed bathroom and accuse the librarian of participating in a plot to groom children for pedophiles. I, I, so like and I don't think anybody the comfort for all of us is that nobody thinks that this is a these are widely or broadly held views. However, like so many other uh, extreme views, it's, you know, the the volume has gone up tremendously. Uh, you know, so that I think five years ago, the woman who made a presentation to the brand and school board, and in doing so, used all the old tropes, right? That, that uh, any content that deals with LGBTQ, uh, Two-Spirit Plus, uh, people or uh, culture, uh, they that those people are pedophiles, that they are groomers of children for uh, pedophilia and, and child pornography. I mean, this is 
so incredibly vile and ridiculous. But now, you know what? Uh, people feel they haven't they have agency. Uh, they, they, yeah, they feel righteous in their uh, introduction, and and you cannot divorce this movement from the rise of extremism on the left as well, but particularly mm -hmm. the right. And because there's this rise in extreme views on the right, uh, these views are being seen as uh, now mainstream in some way or another. Um, because, you know, I was at Canadian Tire last night. That's my weird segue to what I'm about to say here. Uh, all, always a unique view in the Canadian and, society and, at Canadian Tire. Yeah. Well, you know, what are the two things, the two places that you perhaps would s call the most Canadiana? And one would be Tim Hortons and the mm. other one would be Canadian Tire. And, and those kind of two places. But, you know, I'm in Canadian Tire last night. I'm out there getting some uh, lights for my backyard. And what do I see? Uh, a big display in the front. The first thing you see when you walk in the front door, literally the, the you walk in, there's the shopping carts, there's mm -hmm. the... Uh, the greeter and then boom huge display of pride um pride wow. week coming up and and i at the canadian tire bought two flags bought uh a pin for my daughter and then i also bought uh, a little decoration for my office like uh, the pride people interested mm -hmm. engaged in supporting pride is now I think mainstream. So as a result, what you get is a sort of an equal and opposite reaction in certain segments of the Canadian political economy, but particularly those who are feeling most threatened um, because they have benefited perhaps mm -hmm. most in the past by the ostracization or the marginalization of LGBTQ uh, two-spirit peoples. So it's kind of this interesting moment within Canadian society uh, and I say interesting in the most loosest way, <laughs> meaning yeah. that you're seeing this vitriolic response to what is being a generally accepted view in society, which is LGBTQ people are are welcome, they're mainstream, they're now leading political parties and so on. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the broader implications for democracy uh, in countries like Canada and the United States, and but not just Canada and the United States, is this idea that... Uh, people who are in a position to make decisions about what we do and what we say, um, you know, that they are, um, they're, they're doing things that are not broadly supported by the general public. Even in the United States, the, the war, uh, the culture war against uh, transgendered people and uh, LGBTQ uh, plus community in, in general the um uh the, the you know the sanitizing of public education to remove references to systemic racism and uh uh you know and people of of other uh, uh sexual orientations and even the the state by state uh wildfire of abortion bans these are policies that are not widely accepted approved by american society and yet, you know, legislators, opinion leaders, people with authority are doing them. You know, getting back to Manitoba, uh, the Brandon School Division has become this weird, you know, battleground uh, over this uh, issue or the issue of banning uh, any materials that deal with um, LGBTQ two-spirit plus content. Um, I don't believe 
that that Brandon, this is what Brandon wants. I don't believe that the vast majority of people in Brandon really want, a want to ban these materials and b <laughs> are, are support the uh, the opinions that were offered in, by the delegation. Yeah, and. I mean, evidence of that really is, uh, if you think back a few years, how controversial perhaps the uh, the Pride Parade was going to be at Steinbach and the cacophony, the huge explosion of support from not just people who came from other outside Steinbach, people in Steinbach. And there is a measure of people, I think, that perhaps hold these archaic and old views and and but yet there is uh, way more people that we don't hear from and that we see in a, like there was a rally in Brandon this week uh, and led by all the major political organizations in the city and um, politicians. And then, you know, QP organized it and so on. You know, when when there is this kind of vitriolic reaction, there's a denial to truth. And I said just a minute ago uh, that I want to edit myself because uh, I said just a minute ago that, you know, LGBTQ people are now leading. I mean, they always have led, just yeah. they just open about it. And, and now that they're, you know, there's a kind of openness in society to hear views and, and to hear particularly ways in which uh, people live and, and think and act and, and be that they always have been. Uh, then what you do is you get into what society actually looks like. And so mm -hmm. this is a step of truth, if anything, because now we're seeing what the world looks like. My daughter is doing a project right now on studying the French Revolution, and many of the leaders within the French Revolution were LGBTQ yeah. people, people who, people who uh, were at the fringe of society uh, and then came to the center and led one of the most important social action movements in history. So, I mean, how many times do you have to, you can just list them all off, different activists throughout the period. But I think when you get a reaction like this, uh, a lot of people go, oh no, and this is terrible. And this is, we should shut, we should, uh, you know, this, these, this is a terrible thing that's happened. This person made a presentation. I always think mm -hmm. this is like a good thing. When you mm -hmm. see people kicking and screaming the most, yeah, that's a sign of change occurring. Um, those who are uh, in pr in privilege and power positions, realizing that they're losing their power, I always think that means change is happening. Yeah, and I, I agree. Although I'll add one worrisome caveat. So, what has allowed, um, you know, political leaders with extreme views to really uh, change? like the very fabric of American society, certainly American institutions, uh, which what's allowed them to do that is the scourge of low voter turnout. So, um, you know, like it is, uh, we're making, you know, uh, incredibly broad generalizations right now. So I'll make a couple to kind of prove my point, but we're living in an age where a minority of people with an extreme view can actually inflict a lot of damage on our institutions because not enough of the people who we know genuinely disagree with them want to show up and vote. So that's what allows, you know, somebody like Ron DeSantis, uh, the governor of Florida, to maintain such a lock on political power in that state. Does he represent the majority opinion of Floridians? I don't think there's any proof that he does. At the very least, I think the, the issues that are important to him are split. What allows him to do it is the fact that he knows the core of his political support, electoral support, are going to show up and vote him in every time. Whereas people who disagree with him 
for a variety of reasons that will be the subject of a future episode of Dagon and the Lone Ranger, um, don't. Uh, they're not reliable. Uh, you know, younger people who really disagree with what Ron DeSantis is doing do not show up in sufficient numbers to to make their their uh, you know their feelings known. So you know that is transitioning back to Manitoba. You know, it's an argument in Canada, like use it or lose it, right? Vote or suffer the consequences. You know, the one thing I'd say that in uh, a small defense of apathy, if you can defend apathy. Oh, wow. This is going to, we're going to, we're going to definitely, we're going to have to continue this offline. I I had a super interesting conversation in my travels recently. So I was in Peterborough, Ontario, and, um, and we were discussing about what I'll call the high road, you know, and, uh, someone had come up to me during my, one of my talks and said, you know, why is it that you're always seeking the high road or, or this in this person's opinion, uh, sort of a constructive response to racism? And I said, it's exhausting to continually try to engage irrationality with rationality uh, or. I'm living proof, by the way, if you just look at my email account, you'll see that, you know, I'm. I constantly exhaust myself trying to preach, you know, well, sanity to the insane. So I, I mean, I, I always think credit to you. I don't respond as much as you do to some of the unreasonability that I get in my inbox. And I'm thinking of, I mean, these aren't just fringe people. These are former justice mm. ministers, former, um, you know, CEOs and former, these are people who were in immense power positions, former judges that, that rain down really unreasonable views to me. Uh, but the the question is, is, you know, when do you engage? When do you not engage? And just returning back to this issue, the Manitoba mm-hmm. Libraries Association is going to hold a forum or a um, a portion of their annual conference on the issue of book banning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What you're doing is you're you're basically arguing in this case with those who want to argue some principles like gravity doesn't exist and you want to argue with them that gravity does exist you know, say, like, what is the basic argument around LGBTQ banning books? Uh, they all the, are all the terrible in nonsensical things that you pointed out, that they're somehow luring or tricking children, that they're pedophiles, that none of none of that is true. It, it's basically saying gravity doesn't exist. And you're making up purple people eaters. And what you're trying to argue with someone is that purple people eaters don't exist or purple people eaters is a facade. You're making it up in your head. So it's the question is, is when do you engage with Mm. rationality? Uh, What's the best way to do so? And the high road is sometimes very difficult. So uh, in the defense of apathy for just a moment, I certainly understand why people don't want to vote, but uh, it's almost like those who want change have to do the double heavy work of mm-hmm. continuing to believe in positivity, continuing to believe in change, or else those who do not believe in change, do, do not believe in positivity or or inclusivity, will then just win the day. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I, I uh, will acknowledge I spend way too much time trying to change unchangeable minds. Uh, and, and that's not even, I mean, sometimes it's just about, I don't actually feel like I want to let somebody get away with, you know, saying something that I personally believe is ignorant uh, or, uh, you know, really vile. And uh, it, it it is, there is an element of pointlessness to it. I will say, though, that every once in a while, I do get a breakthrough. 
Like I, I do, I do get somebody who says, whoa, okay, well, you know, now that I went back and read my original note, I don't actually think that's a good expression of what I think. So here's what I think. And then it becomes, you know, a better exchange. But you, you are, know, you're yeah. a saint to, uh, yeah. to do some of that. Work. Well, but, it, you know, recently I, uh, I retweeted a story from the Guardian newspaper about a, you know, a decision that was made by a um, professional uh, team in France's top professional soccer division. They were having a Pride Day uh, celebration, part of a league-wide, nationwide Pride celebration where all the players and all the teams were going to have rainbow colored numbers on their jersey. And five or six players from the team, uh, Toulouse, uh, refused. And so the team suspended them for that game, did not allow them to play in that game. And uh, so I posted this story with the note that said, Hey, NHL, you know, there is a solution to your problem with uh with players not uh willing to demonstrate uh tolerance uh on you know in pride celebrations and i get a i get a, t a tweet back from some person who says oh you know uh ban the players from playing way to be inclusive and uh yeah so this is what i call the gerbil wheel of of debate with you know irrational and hateful people is that um you know they they can say whatever they want, and they have the they have this you know severe fierce sense that they're allowed to say whatever they want, and if you get in their grill or God forbid suggest that what they're saying is vile and toxic, well then all of a sudden you're the hater, and yeah. uh, you know what there is there's no that is the straitjacket of uh, of philosophical discussion. and this is the. This yeah. is the problem with uh, free speechers or people who chant free speech is they don't actually want free speech. They just want dictatorial speech. My speech is the free speech and you don't get to have free speech, which is the accountability or the critique of my free speech. And we, this is something, uh, an alarming trend on both the right and left political spectrums. Uh, but, um, you know, now that we've solved all the world problems. By yeah, for this week. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get to what our feature interview is. Uh, I'm so happy that uh, that you got to interview uh, what has been a very good friend and colleague of mine for a long period of time. Uh, he's now in the upper administration at the University of Winnipeg, uh, but I know him as the organizer of Riverview Soccer Nights uh, <laughs> in the Riverview community of yeah. uh, Winnipeg. Um, our kids played soccer together, but uh, so I've known him on a social uh, on a social scale, but uh, you, of course, know him as one of the most important and logical minds on city planning in the city, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, in the country as well. Gino Destasio, who is just a remarkable researcher at the University of Winnipeg who studies city planning. Yeah, uh, Gino. I mean, you know, uh, full uh, admission. So he's a resident uh, of the a resident member of the Riverview Mafia, of which I am also a, char a chartered member, and uh, so we're neighbors and uh, and uh, and good friends. But I've also uh, interviewed him and used him as a resource uh, many times over the year. My work for the Free Press, because he's also director of the Institute of Urban Studies and uh, VP of Research and Innovation for the University, and he's heavily involved in. Um, the uh, University of Winnipeg's Community Renewal Corporation, and for people who don't know, 
search it up uh, and look at the work that they've done because so this is academia in action. So these are people who have studied solutions to poverty, homelessness, a lack of affordable housing, uh, downtown uh, development and revitalization. And, and they've really literally put their money where their mouth is. Dr. Lloyd Axworthy, when he was president of the university, really uh, was the spark for a lot of this. But they, they, have, uh, they have developed and expanded the campus of the university in some very creative ways. They've also uh, built affordable house, mixed uh, income housing uh, around the downtown core. And uh, they've also led the redevelopment of projects like the, uh, the Merchant Hotel redevelopment on uh, Selkirk Avenue. So uh, the reason I reached out to Gino was to bring some additional perspective into the discussion about Portage Place and uh, a recent uh, uh, proposal by True North Real Estate, which is the real estate development arm of True North Sports and Entertainment, which owns the Winnipeg Jets and the building that they play in and has been invested about a billion dollars in mostly high-end commercial and residential real estate. So they've made a proposal to do a massive uh, redevelopment, repurposing of Portage Place. And in the wake of this, what became clear is that um, True North is, you know, seen a little bit as a villain by uh, uh, the the people who make valuable contribution to the debate about downtown th uh, through social policy and social service agencies, and um, and their concerns about True North and the deal or the the way they may be involving public money. There, there are no invalid concerns that they've expressed, but I kind of felt like I needed a um, a calm voice, a sober, a sober voice to kind of talk about what True North is doing, pros and cons, and really though, like, like what we should expect to come from this. And for anyone who's, you know, we got lots of listeners outside of the Manitoba region, uh, who doesn't, don't know about the kind of ongoing issue with the Portage Place downtown mall, uh, back in the, was it the eighties? In the yeah, 1987 is when it opened. 1987 is, I remember as a kid uh, coming in from Selkirk, busing into town. Um, and in the downtown core, literally the core of the downtown, is this massive mall, which at the time in the late 80s, early 90s, big deal. Uh, was this bustling yeah. place. It was this place in which it was the go to place. I remember that we would come in and we would spend the whole day there. Uh, it would be not just a food court, but also a place to hang out, a place for clothing, for commercial development, also movie theaters. There was an IMAX theater on the third floor. Very uh, theater exchange. Yeah. Very theater exchange. You know, it was it was the place to go. It was bigger than the, any of the malls, which you now take most of the press in the city, like St. Vitale or Polo Park. And um, Portage Place was the place to go. Now, over the years, what's happened is that uh, Portage Place has been taken over by two major things. One is uh, the kind of lack of commitment to the downtown core, which has led into a number of social issues that have led into, uh, you know, people abandoning the downtown, including businesses, but also I think, you know, the city overall for a number of years. And the return of the urban development, which has been led in many ways by the installation of the downtown arena, 
by True North. Mm-hmm. And so you've got two different kind of interesting competing elements. A, a downtown core, like most Canadian cities, has been decaying for a very long period of time. You're seeing mm-hmm. a rise in crime, a rise in social issues, poverty. And, and much of that has impacted Portage Place. People don't generally shop there anymore. Um, it's generally kind of seen as a place that's dying. A lot of government offices have filled in where commercial developments left. And then on top of that, you've got just nearby, about a block and a half over, um, this urban commitment by True North to bring the Winnipeg Jets back, to build a small casino nearby, to develop the commit to the downtown in ways that the city has not. And now you've got this tension. True North has expanded. They even have this massive skyscraper development right by the True North Center. And I think that in many ways, people are cautiously optimistic or cautious Mm -hmm. something or other uh, when it comes to anything True North wants to do. Uh, They've also been criticized somewhat rightly in the past over not committing to the issue of poverty enough. Uh, That's what's led to what we've talked about in this podcast, the downtown safety patrol and so on. Mm But now, $50 million commitment is what they're suggesting, uh, which would be a mix of government money, private money, and so on, to redevelop the Portage Place. We're going to add a zero to the 50, and it's uh, oh, sorry, 500 million. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was just looking at my uh, my my inform- my my notes here. 500 million, sorry, 500 million. Um, and that is to create a downtown community campus is what they're calling it. Basically a place with a health center, housing, groceries, community services. And uh, that's the issue here. So if anyone outside the city, uh, mm-hmm. that's what's led to this great conversation with Gino D'Astasio. Uh, and uh, it's, and two meetings of the Riverview Mafia. That's right. Uh, one more member of the Riverview Mafia, and it's uh, it's literally a hit hit squad. So uh, as long as we keep it at two, then it, everything stays. I don't same. even know what you're hitting. Yeah, Maybe yeah that's, that's right. right. Um, yes. Yeah, so let's get to it right now. And uh, this is our conversation with Dr. Gino Distasio, Director of the Institute of Studies and Vice President of Research at the University of Winnipeg. So this past week, um, the city was somewhat transfixed, I think, probably for a a good day, maybe two days, which is a long time in a news cycle, on a proposal from uh, True North Real Estate Development, which is the real estate development arm of True North Sports and Entertainment, owners of the Winnipeg Jets. And they have come up with quite a complex plan to redevelop and repurpose the Portage Place Mall, which really has no future as a uh, retail power center. And the reaction to uh, the proposal, I mean, it is, uh, the, the, you know, on the good side of it, it it's quite an amazing reaction. Um, it's got a lot of people talking. Uh, and it's, it's actually, but there's also, there's a lot of anger and a lot of angst going on as well. And so to kind of help sort this out, uh, I've uh, thrown the hand grenade <laughs> this story over to Gino Distasio from the uh, University of Winnipeg. And Gino, you wear so many different hats. So which hat which should we introduce you as? So Just, uh, you know, professor from the University of Winnipeg is fine. That, no, whoa, 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 whoa. This is okay. like me gone in undisclosed locations. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. No, but you you do do other yeah. uh, important administrative stuff for the university. Yeah, yes. the other hat is uh, vice president of research. So I help coordinate the research activity of faculty and others on campus. But, okay. Yeah. And, and we'll get deeper into this as well. But, but you've also been a very key 
player in the University of Winnipeg's hands-on development uh, and redevelopment of various properties. Some of it's been uh, ground-up new construction. Other times it's been repurposing and, and uh, rehabilitation of buildings. And what we're certain, because that is, it's relevant to what we're talking about. But let, well, let's deal, first of all, uh, get your first hot takes on Portage Place, uh, the true north uh, and I'll, I'll do a, a capsulized uh, summary. What they're talking about is really taking it out of service as a retail power center. Uh, they're going to keep a couple of the elements of it. They're going to keep Priority the- Theater Exchange. They're going to keep the YMYWCA, uh, which is attached. Um, they have plans for a $300 million sh- um, healthcare facility that will include a brand new uh, uh, footprint for the Pan Am uh, Clinic and Surgical Center. But other, uh, important, uh, healthcare, uh, services, uh, and there will be a residential component at the other end of the, uh, of the, what used to be the mall. And they're going to cut it in, not quite in half, kind of, they're going to cut a third of it off, but they're going to restore a pedestrian level, uh, pathway through the mall by removing the Edmonton atrium. Okay. So that's in, in a nutshell what they're right. talking about. Now you can give us the hot take. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> well, I think you summed it up pretty good. Yeah. I mean, Portage Place, when it opened was one of those really unique spaces that right from the beginning, it never quite fit. And so to see it kind of deconstructed right now back to some of the elements that probably would have worked better, which is that transparency that I think has been talked about, uh, you know, cutting Edmonton back through the mall, I think is going to be one of the single most important pieces of this is just the connectivity of that space, which is massive, right? We're talking about a massive parcel of land. And I think when Winnipeggers look at how it's being redeveloped, you kind of got to look at the site itself, you know, including the old free press building, mm-hmm. which also was transformed into, you know, health and other kinds of components, all the way down to the investors building to the, the, uh, the apartment towers that were added. But all those pieces fail to understand that the retail piece just wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. And remember, you know, it opened with a with a Holt Renfrew that didn't last very long. Holt Renfrew, the Gap. I mean, it was all yes. A list uh, retail and food, right? Uh, and I, I don't remember what the gestation was or the life, the shelf life of that stuff was, but it certainly within a decade it was all gone. Yeah, and so the the reimagining of it as as something new and something more attuned to the the local character of the neighborhood, which has changed dramatically in its own. And, and I think what we should all understand as a city is that we're being dramatically redefined by immigration and changes into who is coming downtown now. And if you walk along the promenade behind Portage Place or mm. through Webb uh, Place, you'll see that the, the cultural imprint has changed dramatically, right? And uh, even into Central Park. So to see more uh, health, social services coming into that precinct right now probably is a better fit than some of the retail. So now you said you refer to it as unique in its time, but a, but a bad fit, and which is a story that really in medium-sized cities in this country, and we were talking about some of the things that we've seen in Ottawa or Hamilton – um, that, that, that was a story often uh, told. So, but explain unique for its time, but then bad fit. Well, unique for its time in that, you know, you really saw something, uh, quite distinctive in a mall. I mean, the four stories that included commercial, retail, 
even residential in the mall. Some aren't aware that there are actually apartments in Portage Place now. Uh, transforming uh, the two seniors blocks in the back, uh, mixed rental, 600 units of housing at the time. Uh, it was a mega project, but it was a time when retail and the downtown mall were, were starting to, uh, to fall apart. We weren't seeing a lot of success in the downtown. And then we saw the fall of the downtown department stores. Mm. And it started with the, the Eaton's Empire falling to now what we're seeing across North America as, uh, as traditional department stores in the downtown have really been uh, replaced now. So Portage Place and the downtown of Winnipeg, we, we held on to retail as being the anchor for how you could successfully revitalize a downtown. We didn't learn that that was changing. Mm-hmm. And we needed to rethink it to a better scale yeah. in places like your your old hometown of Toronto, where yeah. they kept that street size, that street scale retail that still thrives. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, now, I think as well, like I think a lot of people will categorize or characterize Portage Place as a failure. And you and I were talking about this in preparation. Like when I was hired way back when, okay, so... It was 1986. I have to tell the, I rarely like to disclose that, but the day I was hired, I went out to a phone booth that also dates me on Portage Avenue, called my mom and said, Hey, don't worry. I'm not coming home to live in your basement. I've got another job. And, uh, Portage Place was about half built. And so I really started at the Free Press building on Carlton and Portage and watched, watched it go up. I didn't really get a sense of what was there before. But I've always thought, I've certainly seen photos and I've talked to people about what was there before. Is it, I've always thought it's fair, but you're going to tell me because you're the expert. Uh, do we have to consider what was there before the mall, before we declare Portage Place to have been a colossal failure? Well, and it's interesting because the north side of Portage or North Portage development is as it's been called and referred to was seen as the challenging side to Portage. South side was doing a little bit better and it was anchored by the two department stores at the time. The north side, which was kind of an eclectic mix of, you know, uh, uh, pool halls and, and restaurants and all kinds of things, they, a lot of vacancy. Been horrible decisions to demolish right. heritage buildings. Yes. And, yeah. You know, and again, if, if I could go back in the time machine, we probably would have preserved that facade and that scale of downtown walk-up stores that I think right now is probably the future. Uh, we're seeing that move to more smaller scale kinds of uh, entrepreneurial investments in small shops, not the large scale, because we've we've lost that to the suburban areas. We don't need to recreate that in the downtown. Yep. So I still think, interestingly, from what I've seen in this in this uh, proposal, is it actually maybe opens up some really unique opportunities throughout the downtown mm-hmm. to pick up what might be displays. Because there are still some activities in Portage Place that are working, not many, but a few. But it might say to the south side of Portage, along Graham and some of the other streets, smaller uh, retail commercial mm-hmm. operations might actually be even more viable now. So it's one of the, one of the things that I'm looking at, because I think what was unveiled a week ago or so, uh, at a big event uh, in the mall in the uh, Edmonton atrium, and uh, as an aside, we we both uh, share uh, a somewhat uh, emotional connection with the with the Edmonton uh, Street atrium in the mall because, uh, as I found out, it was both of us when our kids were that age took our kids 
to get their pictures with Santa uh, in Portage Place. And why, Gino, why did we go to Portage Place? <laughs> oh, I love this story. Yeah. Because the line was so short. Yeah, there was no line. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And perhaps, like, I'm, I'm just a journalist. But you're like an urban planning, you know, you're one of the one of the country's leading urban planning instincts. Shouldn't you have been warned at that time that there was something wrong? <laughs> well, and you know what? We were talking about it. We we're talking yeah. about that transformation that something needed to happen to either reimagine retail in the downtown yeah. and to rethink the mall. But Portage Place is one of those last malls built yeah. in a downtown in Canada that is still holding on by its fingertips. Mm-hmm. We've seen We've yeah. seen and we will continue to see kind of the demise of the downtown mall follow the pathway of the downtown department store. We just got to rethink what retail is going to look like in the downtown. And, you know, I hope kids can still come downtown, get a picture with Santa. Might be at a little bit of a different scale. Yeah. But, you know, maybe it's it's uh, something to think about. So the, the thing that I'm always looking at, and I actually think there's a thread we can connect to the University of Winnipeg itself because you and I have discussed – the impact that the university and its internal uh, services and – I mean, there's not a lot of retail, but there certainly is a lot of food services and the impact that that has on the, on the neighborhood around the university. So one of the things I'm looking for when the final True North proposal comes, because I don't honestly believe we're, we're seeing the final proposal. It's going to change a lot. One of the things I'm looking for, though, is I actually – because they did mention some retail – and they did mention some food services. And I would actually prefer if some, especially since this project is going to get public support, I would prefer there would be almost none. Uh, I would prefer that they, they create a critical mass of people. Like they, they create the reason for the people to be there, hopefully beyond three o'clock in the afternoon and then allow street level retail, street level food services, allow the neighborhood to, to grow so that the Portage Place becomes the fertilizer, uh, that, you know, that, that causes other things to grow around it. Is that, is that too simplistic or can they, can both things coexist? I think they can both coexist. And, you know, I, I remind people that, you know, there's, more than 20,000 learners in the downtown that include the University of Winnipeg and the other education centers. If we can get the downtown population up well over 20,000, which we're getting there, we're getting to 20. You're maybe. talking residential population. Residential. That gives you, you know, 40, 45,000 students, staff, people living in the downtown. You've got visitors and you've got the employment sector. So I always say on any given day, you've got maybe close to 100,000 and maybe more if you mm. add in some events. We got to start making the conditions that meet what's being demanded, whether it's more coffee shops, restaurant, light kinds of retail. And that, that to me will be defined as things unfold. So I'm with yep. you. I'm curious as to how the retail component will unfold in a, a reimagined portage something. And I'm also interested in the food court component or food services component. Yeah. Cause now in the downtown and even towards the forks, we've got a couple of unique experiences mm-hmm. that people can have if they want that congregate style eating or whether they're looking for more, uh, different style of opportunities there. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I think it trying to find the chemical reactions that take place. Like you build something new. What impact does it have? We certainly have a lot of examples of sort of the laws of unintended consequence. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, building A includes this element, 
that and what kind of an impact does it have on the surrounding neighborhood? I mean, for me, the number one thing that this facility has to do is it has to, it has to serve a population of people that need to be there longer than nine to 3 PM. Uh, as a former business owner in the exchange mm-hmm. district, like it is, uh, and, and other people I know that own uh, retail and food services in the downtown or the exchange district will say the same thing. Um, you can't get anybody early in the morning, uh, like before nine o'clock in the morning. Like, uh, you can't, um, uh, really do business beyond three o'clock in the afternoon. I mean, most restaurants, uh, in standalone restaurants close at three, three thirty in the afternoon. I mean, what you need to do is lengthen the business day or lengthen the, the day, like the, the hours of activity. And I'm not like, again, the, the fine print will, will do a lot of that is, will there be space for public meetings and programming that will draw people there later into the evening? Will the health uh, component do that? Well, and that's the key part that you're, you're talking about extending the day and the hours and the days of the week. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, that, you know, we've talked about this before about the 24 hour city. Mm-hmm. I'm more in- intrigued by the, the, the creation of a real strong neighborhood component. And we're starting mm-hmm. to see it in the exchange district. Yep. And I think that that will naturally start to spill out as we start to reimagine what a downtown can look like yeah. in the next 10, 15 years. I'll say very quickly that between 2005 and just before the pandemic, around mm-hmm. 2020, for 15 years, Winnipeg's downtown experienced a, a level of growth and transformation and change that we hadn't seen in more than a century. We were firing on all cylinders. We had a lot of entrepreneurial things going on. We were building condos and rental units, even doing some conversions. Yep. All that came undone by the pandemic in three years. And that always strikes me as to the the complexity of the downtown market, which is unlike any other that you see in a city. Yeah. It's very dependent on a whole bunch of external factors, both internal to the city and external. We all want visitors. We are adding more experiences in the downtown mm-hmm. that should help stabilize things. And I, I'm bullish on the downtown, and I've mm-hmm. always been, And and but... The elephant in the room remains shifting the perception of downtown as that place that you're seeing. To be there longer, to be free to come at any time and feel safe and welcomed and have something to do. Now, you mentioned the, uh, you know, the idea of of bisecting uh, the existing footprint and and restoring Edmonton as a pedestrian uh, throughway, not a vehicle throughway. And it does... You know, it does, it reminds me too that there were, in the original North Portage development, there was collateral development. I mean, the whole west side of Central Park was, there were a whole bunch of new, uh, residential apartments built in there. I lived in one of the buildings for a while and it was, I loved it. Uh, but, you know, like the, what's happening around Central Park, is actually like a huge success story, right? So the, the Winnipeg Foundation and others were involved in this, you know, wholesale redevelopment of Central Park. They talked to the people in the neighborhood. They, they converted the space into things that the people in the neighborhood wanted, wintertime and summertime. And I mean, like you go there on summer nights and see the soccer, see people bringing their, their families out to eat meals, just sitting on the grass. I mean, like it is a, it is a true urban central park. 
And but all of that right is cut off right now from because of the mall. So um, is that is that potentially a little bit? Of, if everything were to work out, that's some of what we could see leak south. Yeah, and you know the interesting part of that is. You know, I, I think part of the, the idea of closing traffic back in the day was to take traffic off of Edmonton yeah. through Central Park to kind of balance that. So sometimes if we tinker too much, it yeah. could go one way or the other. You could think about this too in other cities that have kind of a real Central Park and that hub and the activity mm-hmm. and all the amenities. Then you utter the word, the G word, gentrification. gentrification. Yeah. Right. And we haven't quite <clears throat> uttered it in the downtown and in the Central Park area. But it does have probably some of the best conditions to support a massive transformation. Mm-hmm. I think we're a long ways from that. But if Winnipeg and Manitoba are to experience the influx through immigration mm-hmm. over the next five to 10 years, there's going to be tremendous pressure on the housing market, the central housing market, the downtown market, mm-hmm. that we might just start seeing uh, a lot more activity, depending. Depending, yeah. So, I mean, this is another thing that we talked about before we, we started recording. But, you know, I mean, so, okay, so there are concerns about gentrific- gentrification and they're valid concerns. Um, most of the development that True North has been involved in south of Portage Avenue is really is on the higher end of the its classy commercial space. It's, um, I, I don't like the term luxury condominiums, uh, but they're certainly market rate condominiums. And, um, you know, they did uh, acquire or they, they were able to access tax increment financing. They got an exemption uh, for creating, uh, you know, a certain amount of, of uh, subsidized or lower income uh, housing options. So, I, I mean, that is a source of major concern by groups in the community. And I, and I think valid concern. I think this project is, a you know, literally – is an opportunity for for True North to put a little bit of its of the money it's earned in in where its mouth is, but I also I can't quite get a fix on, like you can't say what they've done south of Portage Avenue is gentrification because that was never an area with mixed income residential or lo- it wasn't really a residential area and what is between Broadway and Portage was always market rate yes. No, absolutely. And I think we need to be careful in, in how we frame what the mix of, you know, market versus non-market housing is in the downtown and really look at kind of where the demand is in the city and provide some options. We have to remember too that, you know, through True North and some of the developments that they put together, they've actually invested well now with this, it'll be well over a billion dollars. We've not seen that level of private investment in the downtown ever. And to now take on Portage Place, where most developers have been running from, mm-hmm. they're looking to make a major transformation. I'm not convinced that we need to prop it up by a significant number of affordable housing units. I just don't know where the market is right now. As yeah. we see new Canadians and others arriving, we need larger footprint units as well. We need to have a range of housing in the downtown and through the Central Park area. So we've looked at this over the last two decades. What is that ideal mix in the downtown between, you know, rental, uh, condo, market versus non-market? It's a heck of a complex story and we'll never get it right. Mm-hmm. But we also have to be careful when you do incentivize a lot of the development around there because part of what you want to mm-hmm. do with these developments is leverage more 
Yeah. The goal of uh, of downtown revitalization is to actually see seed development like mm. we did beginning in the 80s through the forks to leverage more and more growth. Yeah. Where you turn that tap on and off becomes the hard part. Yeah. So the you know the 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 real true north real detractors um and I and again like I don't think it's a knee jerk reaction. I think they they genuinely have a different vision uh for downtown and they you know even though they may put a different spin on it you know when they accuse true north of being a successful private company that has leaned heavily on public uh support to get some of the things they get done done um i i don't think that's factually inaccurate although i think that the you know and i've made this argument in my columns I mean, I think a lot of people in the in the social service, social policy area are going to take issue with the building of an arena for you know millionaire hockey players, and and I, I and on some levels I don't disagree with their concern. I also know that it's something that a lot of people in the city wanted, and that I think it's 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 certainly improved the lives of some Winnipeggers. The big question hanging in the air, which even goes beyond. I think the issue of mixed income uh, housing is the truly vulnerable populations of the downtown. So it, it, we can't get away from the fact that 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 mall became a focal point for a lot of people that were homeless, uh, mental health and addictions. Um, you know, I mean, literally when the when the mall closed, or and before that, by policy, when the mall owners decided to not let people uh, loiter or congregate in the, in the mall. The, you know, these people were left with really nowhere to go in the downtown. And the, these people are there. So what is the ob- what's True North's obligation with this? Because they are going to get public money. No, so, absolutely. Yeah. I always say this in, a, in the most sincerest way. Downtowns don't cause poverty. Downtowns don't cause homelessness. So we shouldn't look at the downtown to solve those major social issues that confront us mm-hmm. as a as a city and as a country. But I think we can also say that sure, if public funds are going to flow into a reimagined Portage Place, is there a social lens that we can apply yeah. that can provide some support and some resource? I think that that's a great way to proceed. What that balance is will have to be carefully considered. Mm-hmm. What is that site trying to achieve in its 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 next form? Mm-hmm. Is it a mix of retail, some social services? Great. But I don't think we should be looking to True North to be the the shining star of solving problems that we've never solved in this city for 125 years. Okay. So at the university, I would say you guys certainly have put your money where your mouth is. So you're going to you're going to correct me or or provide a more accurate um update. But the university has been and not just right around the campus, but throughout the downtown and in the broader core of the city, you guys have been hands-on in uh, developing, saving, repurposing uh, properties, and most recently, very active on the um, mixed income and subsidized housing. So um, why don't you, first of all, just explain some of the projects the university has been involved in, then we'll talk about what it means for the future. Yeah, no, I mean, over the last uh, 15 years, the University of Winnipeg, you know, first started by, you know, Lloyd Axworthy, uh, when he came president, 
started the Com Community Renewal Corporation that we call the CRC that helped uh, transform things like the old roller rink into not only a state-of-the-art science building, but also the accompanying McFeeters Hall. That is, uh, was one of the first, you know, mixed-use projects where we put students and uh, low-income housing and two or three bedroom units, which is what people were demanding. Family space, right. yeah. Take a look nearby where the old former... Um, the former United Army surplus store was transformed that into a school of economics with uh, not only a student housing tower, but a truly mixed use project that had student market and non-market units. Mm -hmm. And we've just continued up that street right? and also repurposing. So we all have an obligation to do what's right, but mm -hmm. you really got to dig into how you want to do that kind of work. Yep. And I see what True North is doing. Like they've got a massive investment, well over a billion dollars. They've got to protect that. But they also have an obligation, and I think they recognize that, mm -hmm. to give back to a community that's given True North a lot of the success that they, they have right now. But again, I think people need to just temper mm -hmm. what can come out of a redevelopment project like this. It is not going to solve all the challenges that we continue to feel in the downtown, that we feel in the inner city and the surrounding neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. There are much bigger things that we need to do. So, you know, the so you guys with through the CDC uh, have been able to raise money, um, you know, privately and publicly, uh, access government programs. Do you, you know, really? My opinion now. So I think that the, especially on the, the west side of Memorial, uh, down towards the ledge, uh, the, the work that you guys have done in those buildings, the, to me, really is the future of the affordable housing solution, uh, which is building by building, development by development, 100 units here, 150 units there, right mix, supported by the right infrastructure around it. Um, but, you know, one of the complaints, and again, I, I, I don't actually disagree with this. Um, you know, the, um, the, the, the perception is that True North just get like they roll out the red carpet. Like they're, they move in rarefied air with political leaders and business leaders. And so when it comes time to get a tiff for a luxury hotel and, uh, condos, boom, it's done. Uh, and, and also, like, it was hard not to, the optics of it. I mean, they, they have drawn the provincial government in particular in as a full partner on the, the Portage Place development. From your experience in, in the buildings that you're doing, do you think that we also need a provincial government partner that's a little bit more aggressive at doing the projects like the University of Winnipeg has been doing to go out and actively look for those partners to build that 100 units here, 150 units there? around what True North is doing, and, and then we get we get closer to the kind of downtown we want. I think it's reciprocal, right? Mm -hmm. Organizations, uh, social housing organizations and nonprofits have to also be the leaders, right? So yeah. working with the three levels of government, because a lot of the funding for affordable housing right now is still flowing federally from the national housing strategy and the, the 40 plus billion dollars that Manitoba is leaving a lot of money on the table. Yeah. So in my view, if True North is able to tap into that federal money and we can reintegrate a few extra public housing or sorry, nonprofit housing uh, units into the, into the, into the new design, I'm all for it. 
Yeah. You know, again, we've got to realize two things. One is, as a city, we need to do better in addressing uh, poverty, a shortfall in, in providing affordable housing options that include lower market rents, uh, nonprofit, you know, subsidized housing. Like it is, it is so complicated to figure out how do we move ourselves forward? Yeah. And remember, in in the in the shadow of Portage Place, we still have the the vacant housing project that we tried a few years ago that is sitting there, fenced off. Sorry, which one are you talking about now? Just for listeners, you're talking about the um, on uh, Isabel. Yes. Yes. And the name's going to escape me because yeah. you know I'm staring at you and yeah. it's not coming. No, no, no. But that's okay. Yeah, but it's a it's a, it was a multi-unit. Right, uh, family-sized apartments, and and uh, it was a government, right? And, yeah, and it was a colossal disaster. So we just need to find that way in which we can, as a, as a as a city and as a province, really leverage all the the available supports out there to build more affordable housing. If that's the piece we're going to focus on here, yeah. The other side of it that I see is a, a huge need is rapid supports for addiction, uh, mental mm-hmm. health supports. And also, you know, the proposal of, of moving some surgical, um, you know, supports in there through Pan Am. To me, that's, it's not necessarily novel. Downtowns have traditionally provided a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, primary medical supports. I think using that as an anchor is a good idea. But remember, we already tried that in yeah. the, the original Portage Place by having some provincial health in your old building there at the Free yeah. Press. So it's there now. Yeah, mostly mostly departmental offices, right. though, as opposed to like actual clinical service. services. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean the the healthcare component. Like I I want to know more uh, before I can determine uh, what the value of it is. Certainly, I know the Pan Am Clinic. Uh, you know, Poseidon and Taylor. They've completely outgrown uh, their existing building right. again. Absolutely. Um, I also uh, have no problem in identifying Pan Am. As a disruptive force within the healthcare system, they 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 provide government with a with a lot of creativity and innovation on bringing down the cost of procedures, introducing new technologies. So they need more space to do what they're going to do. And and so I don't I don't think it's it's I don't think it's incompatible at all to look at at bringing that downtown. Um, I think that though, like to me again, like what I kind of want to say. Uh, to Mark Chipman, and I may have actually said this to him at the uh, at the event, but is that you know like for to get the biggest bang for their buck, like I do think affordable housing is the unit. So again, I'm I'm going to do a quick aside. When I lived in Ontario and worked on Parliament Hill for the Free Press, I lived in a not-for-profit housing co-op just off Bank Street, great building. Had a like a 900 square foot one bedroom apartment, really nice. I paid a market rent. Half the uh, units were either subsidized or below market uh, rent, and and I mean that isn't like like Toronto, Ottawa. I mean that that is it, it's a huge stream of affordable housing or more affordable housing in cities that are way more expensive to live in. Why don't we have a broadly based not for profit? Uh, housing cooperative movement in Manitoba, what, like or in Winnipeg in particular, what, what happened? Yeah, I mean it's strange because you would think in a place like Manitoba we would have more cooperatives. I mean there are, and there are a few in yep. the downtown, and there's a few scattered about. But 
you know, this is where, again, maybe one of the pieces that True North might look at, and I think they will, is who can they partner with on the affordable housing site? Uh, of of the proposal, or or in the immediate area, like or the surrounding area. Yeah, yeah. There's a tremendous number of capacity uh, among a lot of the nonprofits to take on a bit more, and I, I think we can do more and look at different ways in which we can deal with the fact that in Canada, average rents are approaching two thousand dollars a month. It average. is becoming yeah. astronomical yeah. to afford rental, and when we look at Winnipeg, like. Fifteen, sixteen hundred dollars now is not a rent that low-income families can really deal with. Yeah. And if you add in the costs of rising energy prices, a hot summer or a cold winter, we're really going down that path where the affordability meter is getting pushed more towards that low-income, hardworking Canadian household that can't afford to live in a place that they could 20 years ago. So is it, you know, because again, like I, I don't, I don't really see the point of, of, of trying to inject too much affordable housing into the Portage Place development. I think, you know, again, I, I would rather that it served as a catalyst to lengthen the day, the active hours in, in that area of downtown, you know, in a way that's not tied to a concert or a festival or a hockey game. Um, but I certainly, I see, I see empty lots, parking lots in particular, where I wish that there were some of the, like that, you know, the, the building you guys were involved in on Broadway and, and then North. I mean, I want to see more buildings like that, and I want to see them uh, around Central Park, east towards the Exchange, certainly west towards um, Memorial Isabel, uh, and beyond. And uh, so, like, I will. I mean, I think as far as anybody gives a crap about what you know, I have to say in my columns. But I'm certainly, you know, want to put the pressure on the current government and who knows, uh, possibly a future different government to come up with a way. Like, if they're going to do this, right? Isn't there kind of a seize the moment kind of, you know, like now is the time to unleash the non not for profit housing uh, movement. Uh, immigration and new Canadian agencies that need transitional housing, like to, to do all this, it's not going to solve directly the problems of homelessness. Uh, but I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. I, I am skeptical that Portage Place should serve as just a, a, uh, an oasis of, uh, of security for the most vulnerable people. I think they need something a lot more focused than, than just a, a you know an a heated atrium, right? You know, one of the as you were speaking, the, one of the most consistent threads that has kept Portage Place active over the years is its role as a community gathering space. Yeah. Whether it was for Indigenous, New Canadians, when you walk in that mall, that has always been the commonality that I've noticed as a gathering place and whether it's through the food court, just people coming and going, but it's always been that central spot. And maybe it took over a little bit when the old, the old uh, bus depot closed. Yeah. Which, so we had these strange anchors in the downtown, but there's something about that location that has drawn people who feel safer there than elsewhere. So part of that is just trying to figure out how we make downtown Winnipeg 
that great place, like your old hometown there of Toronto. I was just there a few months ago, and the beauty of that place is the walkability of many of the streets that have retained this old, just two-story, three-story walk-up retail environment. And I just, I'm, I'm going to come on air. I'm saying it to you. Mm-hmm. I love Toronto. I love its walkability, and mm-hmm. I know it's a big city, but when you're downtown as a visitor, it's a great experience. Yeah. I, I You know, I honestly, because we were just there recently too, and – um you know, for me and my family, especially my kids, like the, the new focus of their interest is Liberty Village. Uh, so this is, you know, west of downtown proper, close to the lake, but not lakefront. And, um, you know, it's still kind of an emerging area. What's interesting, though, and, and this is where I think effective uh, urban planning is uh, you got to be lucky to be good. Right. So, you know, if you go way back into the 70s and 80s when they were doing Queen's Key which was a huge and, and seismic development for Toronto. But you could still see big power center kind of, you know, developments. And then, but, you know, really, you start to look at Queen Street West, Liberty Village. It, it unfolded really, like big time unfolded after 2000 when we knew that nobody was building malls downtown. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the big, you know, anchor. There was no anchor tenants that we, you know, yeah. what we need is... 12 great smaller restaurants and we need streets packed with, you know, retail. Now, it is true that that is also, though, uh, that kind of development is a gateway drug to gentrification. You and I, uh, very briefly, you and I talked about Regent Park, uh, the Regent Park development in Toronto, which uh, for listeners, if you don't know about it, put Regent Park in your Google machine and read about it. It's fascinating. Again, capsulized, an attempt by the city of Winnipeg to kind of deconstruct a classic government uh, housing project where there were a lot of social programs and convert it into mixed use, mixed income, uh, using uh, public money, but also relying heavily on private developers to come in and build new units. So you literally have, you know, luxury or high-end condominiums and you have not-for-profit housing located in the same area with much better amenities. It's not the solution. It's not, in and of itself, it's not finished and it's not a complete idea. But is there, like, is that mixing, constantly mixing incomes, cultures, languages, uh, socioeconomic conditions, is that is that really, like, in general, is that the formula that we want? Well, I think when you look at great cities across the world and great streets and great communities, it is about that interplay between wealth and poverty, between different uses of transportation, the mix and match of cities and just the the, the feeling of it. I, I think the challenge is always when you think too hard about it and try to come up with a formula, 20, 30, you know, yeah. it's not going to work. But it's not to say that in our downtown, we don't need to consider that kind of approach because I think it's great. And that's, again, what we've been trying to do even around the university is the buildings that we'll build will have a combination of rental, market, non-market mm-hmm. as best we can. And we'll kind of tinker with that. Yeah. And I think that as and this... Then, and I should say, because we've looked at some of the units, the market units are, they're not dissimilar from the units that True North has built. They're in that $2,000 a month range and they're, they're big and modern with all, you know, so uh, like it's like that 
part of it, I mean, that kind of unit pays a lot of bills for these things, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And again, we always have to remember too, that as we, we build housing and we change and transform the downtown like we have been for mm-hmm. since its inception. Right now, I think the goal by uh, the, the reimagined downtown plan is to get towards 500 new units a year until we hit some kind of threshold. Right. And let's see what happens. And again, as we start adding more, we'll always be adjusting to the market, whether we like it or not. The market's going to dictate the rents and the prices. And when vacancy rates remain where they are, the market will command higher rents. I'm starting to get a little bit nervous in terms of how we're seeing rents really outpacing again incomes. And it's that polarization between those that can afford the the plus 2,000 rents and those that are barely scraping by with whatever rent they found themselves in and the quality of that rent. Yeah, quality of the, of the, the facility. You know, the other piece, and, and I, I think, you know, maybe in the media, I sort of agree. I think we conflate affordable housing and homelessness, uh, cause they're distinct challenges. Um, what, what are reasonable expectations around the Portage Place development? And, and the ripples of that and what it might accomplish for the homeless population. Like, what should, should we be, should we be making sure that again, like, if not directly from, uh, the Portage Place redevelopment, but as a result of it, um, what should, what should we be looking at? You know, I actually hate the idea that we're we're talking about actually planning for persons experiencing homelessness as a yeah. strategy yeah. as opposed to really thinking about how how we keep end them. Yeah. right but no i agree but i i think in the end if if we're willing to explore the inclusion of social supports be open and inclusive that i don't think we need to think too much about it in the context of downtown planning I think where cities fail is when they start to, you know, criminalize being homelessness through bylaws and exclusion. You can't sit here. You can't be here. So I think there's a fine line. And I know that there's pressure points in the downtown that were exposed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned them as well, whether it's the closure of the library, food courts, the encampments, yeah. the encampments, the loss of cash. Yeah. Right. There's a tremendous amount of work that's being done by the sector that's serving persons experiencing homelessness. I think through consultation, we can come up with a plan that is respectful and mindful. Mm -hmm. But I think our accelerator has to be on ending homelessness, period, Mm -hmm. and moving forward in a good way to find a better solution. So I I don't know how we plan for it. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously a need for those bridge supports absolutely uh, you know and uh and you know i i mean i think i think it, it'll probably you know anger the 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 true detractors of true north but I, I think i think true north has been active in uh you know the downtown community safety partnership and and supporting and drawing uh private support to shelters and things like that you know uh i, I know a lot of people are going to see that as window dressing uh, for their, their real raison d'etre. But, you know, honestly, I know, also know people who work in that sector who don't care where they get the support and when they get the support. And, uh, as a, just as an observer, uh, you know, like you, I, I think preventing homelessness is, is the key. I, I'm not really sure that I know beyond that what the magic bullet or the silver bullet is. 
uh, because then we're just, you know, we're, we're, it's literally just band-aids, right? After right. That. And at one level, you know, hey, we want to add more affordable housing. And the hope is that as we support people's uh, recovery from whether it's addictions or experiencing homelessness, that there's a housing option. Yeah. But they're not always connected in the same way. Like I always say homelessness isn't necessarily a housing supply issue. Yeah. But without supply, we can't solve it. But with the inclusion of whether it's mental health supports, yeah. you know, some education supports in there in terms of getting people uh, educational opportunities, there's all other kinds of things that we should be doing on the prevention side. Yeah, and there has been, I mean, it's hard to figure out um, what could be in the healthcare component of the Portage Place Redevelopment because they literally mentioned everything. <laughs> right. You know, so, uh, and, but... You know, I certainly think that um, they did mention rapid access to um, uh, medication, uh, which is the current government's preferred option to uh, supervised uh, injection. Right. And, you know, I don't think – I think there is a there is a role for that. Uh, you know, I think it is science-based. But, you know, clearly the current government, you know, has got the heebie-jeebies when it comes to save – like what needs to be done to save lives – so, but mental health and addictions. So if the healthcare component, if this becomes a fully staffed, you know, a major net benefit to the array of services that we can offer in mental health and addictions, that alone might justify the $300 million expenditure because we're so underserved in that area right now. And, and it's, and it's just overwhelming the emergency right. rooms, right? Well, uh, but again, that's the whole thing. It's, it's not true north as a health provider. It's True North as a developer and facilitator of providing space for health services to be delivered in that location. Yeah. Right. So again, this is why I say like, I don't think True North is being asked to solve homelessness and or poverty, but in the position that they have right now to redevelop a yeah. parcel of land, if they can make some space available for some social supports to nonprofits or other organizations, health providers, then that's great. Yeah. But let's not again say, hey, unless you can solve all these complex issues that nobody's done, yeah. you can't redevelop a mall that's on the brink of bankruptcy and closure. No, and it, it's, uh, you know, like I think we talked about Hamilton, the Hamilton City Center Mall uh, has been torn down and uh, they sold the land. It's going to be redeveloped into resident, private residential development. Um, you know, like there, there are really only a couple of cities in this country that can continue to support that model. You know, we talked about Vancouver, uh, you know, certainly does. And in Toronto, you know, the, the Eaton Center uh, has uh, somehow persisted, uh, you yeah. know, or, or, or sustained beyond the life of Eaton. Uh, although I was just there and um, Nordstrom was occupying the Eaton anchor yes. spot and they're leaving. Right. So, you know, the, again, like the, I, those facilities, even in a place like, you know, Young and Dundas, I mean, my God, yeah. you know, but it's that, that building is vulnerable. Yeah. The, the sheer square footage yeah. of it is vulnerable. Well, listen, my, if, if this is any indication, my now 16 year old daughter, uh, when we were in Toronto, her and I went to watch a soccer game and her least favorite shopping experience was actually the mall. Her oh, most favorite yeah. was just the store, just, walking mm -hmm. and just being transfixed by the street level activity. Mm -hmm. The mall is just the mall. Yeah. But the beauty was in small little places that she actually had uh, done some research. And I love that. 
Yeah. Um, that's where, again, I think when we start to think about this, it's about the scale of the downtown that we want to see people back on the streets, mm-hmm. feeling safe, you know, accommodating, welcoming, diverse mix of all kinds of peoples from all kinds of income levels or whatever you want. But that's the beauty of a downtown. Give me a city that doesn't have a thriving downtown that is one just all wealthy or all just, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, I think we're, I think we're getting there. Yeah. But we're in a, a pretty tough spot for the next few years, I think, as we come out of this pandemic economy into yeah. sort of a post-pandemic downtown landscape that's going to look a little bit different for Winnipeg. But I think it'll be a continuation of the good things that we've been doing over yeah. the last 40 years. Well, uh, the debate will continue. As a matter of fact, you know, I think I'm sort of encouraged to, to maybe try and put True North uh, face-to-face with some of uh, their detractors who are actually like super smart and, and super respectful people. But I mean, I think that, that, um, I think at some point they do, they, they do need to find common ground on this thing because we need everybody sort of pulling in the same direction. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I think with that kind of approach that I think Winnipeg's been known to be collaborative and, and to really talk and work together. And again, if there is some government money, maybe there's a little extra play there to see where that money goes. But as a good Winnipegger, I'm also saying, hey, let's take that share that we can of the federal money. If they're supporting uh, more housing and affordable through a range of affordable housing, let's go for it. And let's see what we can do that uh, really makes uh, Winnipeg's downtown the place it it should be. The place it should be. uh, I'm going to make a T-shirt. We're going to sell T-shirts. Winnipeg. All right. The place it, it should be. Yeah, I like yeah, it. It's just uh, obscure enough that the young the young people will think <laughs> it's ironic. <laughs> um, Gino Zastasio, University of Winnipeg, and uh, my Riverview neighbor, uh, thank you for doing this. Uh, it you know it is a prickly subject, but it's hard not to be super excited. Absolutely. That was a thoroughly enjoyable conversation with uh, Gino. Uh, about Portage Place, about the future of downtown. A couple of observations about stuff that he said. I, I think that, you know, um, uh, it, I think it's important, and I'll be writing about this soon, to understand that although the impact of what True North is proposing, it's downtown campus, which, again, I think is going to be much different when they unveil uh, a more refined vision than the one that we saw I think there's going to there there will need to be some give and take on the elements of it, but um, we should look at it less as the savior and more as the next big step in the development of downtown. Because really, more and more, what I think is that government should seize the opportunity. And Gino talked about this. Like, look at the work they're going to be doing on Portage Place. Look at what it become and start developing out from there, right? Start, uh, you know, uh, provide money to establish true non, not-for-profit member-owned housing cooperatives. Uh, you know, create more of the mixed income affordable housing that the University of Winnipeg has been doing. Like make a commitment to add a thousand units of affordable housing in, you know, within a two, three kilometer uh, you know, uh, 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 circumference of, of what True North is doing with Portage Place. And then, and then you know, we can really see how, how this project could be a catalyst. It, you know, people oftentimes want to um, sort of paint 
big conglomerates, uh, big corporations, multi-million dollar uh, businesses as as the bad guy, and oftentimes totally justified. You know, if you think back to just a year and a half ago, uh, or maybe two years ago, the pandemic messes up my time. But uh, I wrote a column about the Toronto developer that was seeking to take over Portage Place and basically turn it into uh, a money-making venture involving housing and and has a track record of exploitation and and uh, real problems when it comes to tenants yeah. and so and, and so you know everybody didn't like that deal and they didn't you know including myself and didn't particularly like it because uh, when you see these people externally to the city that bring in corporate mindset, profit before people, that kind of thing, you know, and to be fair, I mean, we didn't actually see a fleshed out plan from that Toronto developer, but here we have a a corporation that yes, multi-million that owns the jets uh, has created a a massive amount of uh, income for the downtown and have profited mightily as a result. But, uh, you know, they have a learning process too. Uh, if we think back to the criticism that they've received when the True North Square, uh, if you go downtown, you'll see this massive new brand new skyscraper development with markets and mixed commercial use and so on. Uh, they were roundly criticized as not committing to affordable development units. That wasn't in their original plan. They modified that as they went and committed to more work in the community, not less. And that turned into the Downtown Safety Patrol a kind of social justice ban, which resulted in um, shelters in the downtown area, as well as, you know, ongoing development that they've done. I've written about this, their commitment to the Indigenous community uh, through the Jets, through other venues that they work, mental health particularly. Um, So they're in a learning journey too. And I think that uh, this is a step in a direction of Mm -hmm. their learning, that they're interested in maybe don't have all the answers and that's where i think people like gino come in but also working with the indigenous community trying to make sure that what will be a massive investment in the downtown area in the next few years mostly indigenous led will have a competent partner in true north and that's not going to come with them alone it's going to come with them working with people and the portage place development i think provides an opportunity yeah i think uh uh viable concern uh, you know uh the southern chiefs uh organization was they were present at the true north unveiling by true north's own admission uh there hasn't been a lot of formal you know collaboration and planning to make sure that uh, all the things that the southern chiefs organization wants to do with the bay building are complementary you know and that nothing that happens with the true north development undermines what's happening with the bay I mean, I don't really, I, I don't really see where there should be any concern uh, there. I think they need each other, right? Like it's a, it, you and know, don't forget the, yeah. the Manitoba Métis Federation is opening yeah. up massive culture in Maine, yeah. just a, just a few blocks over. True North needs the Indigenous community, Southern Chiefs, and the Manitoba Métis Federation, just like they need True North. Those two things mm-hmm. have to be complementary. And never mind the fact that True North, upon um, you know, will then have a massive footprint be, they already have a massive footprint, but a massive footprint in the downtown area. And that will necessarily involve indigenous peoples because it was indigenous peoples that inhabit most of that neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, Again, like I'm, I'm still in the early stages of, of uh, um, research, but, and I want to be careful of saying that I don't believe formal public private uh, partnerships the way we've understood them to be for other projects 
is is what's needed here. But I do think that you need to uh, wrangle the combined, uh, you know, uh, power and potential impact of uh, of the public sector, of government, and the private sector to do as much as they can to find like. And I, I, you know, and this is the one thing like we are we are looking for a solution that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world. I, I that's the one thing I know now is that. When I read about all of the downtown rehabilitation projects, all the efforts that have been made to walk back the big downtown, you know, retail power center model that's no longer valid and that solutions forward and, and you know, how can you serve vulnerable populations? How can you provide more affordable housing? How can you uh, make a downtown, give it a 24 hour a day population and activity? So we are. What we're undertaking is, you know, is something that's never been done 100% successful in any other country in the world. So, you know, this is our chance. Uh, I think that's that's the postscript I want to put on this. This is our chance to find a Winnipeg solution, but in a way that borrows from the best of what we know, but puts it together in a whole new way. It's it's uh, rem- reminds me a lot of the conversation we had just a few weeks back on uh on portage and maine and yeah the, the need for an egregious solution to an egregious problem or an egregious issue that has emerged and so uh i think certainly history has come upon us and portage place i think is the inheritor of a lot of canadian history a lot of good bad great ugly of that history and uh, it will need visionary creativity uh and need something outside the box as you pointed out but that brings us to an end of this week and uh just want to say a big miigwech to yet yet again to you for uh for how ha- you know handling this interview with gino and uh and uh i'm back in town so we can continue the the tra- the the trail as it were and <laughs> it's oh so i can see on the clock that it's time for lone ranger metaphor abuse yes okay it's it's a regular feature here on the podcast so let's go go and and abuse yeah like <laughs> Horses, trails, uh, six shooter, uh, blah blah. Our yeah. trail was short because I I take another trip pretty soon. But more importantly, uh, big thanks to everybody at the Winnipeg Free Press for uh, supporting the podcast. Paul Simin and Wendy Sawatsky for continuing to support us and upload us on time as usual. Um, thanks to Adam, our producer at CGNU. Please, everybody, support local radio, local media. I can't tell you how important it is. Adam makes us sound so great. So big news. And uh, once again, thanks uh, to everybody who listens and for everybody who, uh, we don't actually have t-shirts. We should get t-shirts. Mm. Oh, no, I'm on this, man. I am totally, yeah, we're going to have swag very soon. <laughs> like an online store? Is that what That's right. And I believe an online store would be uh, more than appropriate at this point. I mean, if nothing else, I want a t-shirt that commemorates that dumbass look on my face in the podcast art the the photo that we've taken um and once we get the t-shirts what else to say is that the first person who can accurately provide the reference point for the photo that we use on the podcast the picture of nigan and myself who can tell us because we did mention it on the podcast so if you can provide the origin story for that photograph i will send you a free t-shirt oh okay Uh, Let me check the budget. 
Oh yeah, we don't have. <laughs> thanks, thanks, everybody. Okay, bye everybody.